The Athletic. Eddie Howe has questioned why all the focus seemed to be on Newcastle following the Premier League's effort to block related party loans. I understand the focus being solely on us, but it's not solely on us. This is a vote for all Premier League clubs. We'll be allowed to potentially recruit from a league like every other Premier League club can as well. So, are they actually going to sign Ruben Neves in January? Or anyone else from the Saudi Pro League for that matter? And why is the richest club in the world turning to a 17-year-old midfielder amid an injury crisis? I'm Ayo Akimulere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Okay, so I'm joined by the Athletics' David Ornstein plus Newcastle writer Jacob Whitehead, who actually is in Paris for tonight's game as well and was at the Premier League vote last week. And also Chris Woff. Let, let's let's get into this, right? Big, big game in Parc de Prince. Paris Saint-Germain versus Newcastle. Newcastle bottom of the group in at their Champions League. But you'd expect the Geordies are going to be flying high tonight with the noise. What's the atmosphere like out there in Paris? Right now? been building I mean I was in a very early Euro start out on Monday morning and there were not many Geordies on it I saw one 90s vintage top and that was it but they've just been slowly trickling in throughout the day speaking now on Tuesday lunchtime for the game and it's really starting to fill up around it. I came down to the breakfast buffet this morning and was assailed by northeastern accents on all sides so it went to the Parc de Prance yesterday for the uh, press conference and it was quite nice because there's this element of Slight defiance to Newcastle. The two losses in Dortmund have obviously really uh, affected their chances on the group. Like you said, they're bottom. And all the injuries plus their positioning group, it's this rearguard vibe about them, which is actually quite nice to experience. Eddie Howe said he likes players being with an edge. And well, they've got one now. Newcastle have actually gone out on the Monday and trained at the Parc des Princes, as Jacob said, which they didn't do that at the San Siro or in Dortmund. And I think some of the players were a bit sort of disappointed here with that, sort of experiencing this big Champions League moment the night before. But also, I think just maybe acclimatising, it's going to look likely that Lewis Miley, the 17-year-old, is going to start in midfield again. I mean, this is these are big moments for these players. He's step, really stepped up, but Newcastle are threadbare at the moment. This is the European adventure that they wanted, but it is all on the line, and their, ho- their home form has been exemplary, except that loss to Dortmund, but really, away from home, they haven't excelled in any competition except an 8-0 win over Sheffield United, but take that away, they went to San Siro for 45 minutes, it was a rearguard action, managed to get a draw, went to Dortmund, and they only woke up once Dortmund scored, and so they need to start quickly, they need to really try to quieten down PSG who will have revenge on their own mind so this feels like a really significant moment in the Newcastle United season as a whole. Eddie Howe talked about this being a psychological thing training at part of the front before the match they obviously brought a psychologist Dr Paul Mitchell in in recent months as well but then there's also the wider thing that this has been Newcastle's first Champions League campaign for 20 years. After tonight, this might be their last away day for however however knows long. Like, there's no guarantees in this. And so to actually make sure you have those classic Champions League experiences of night before a game, like Chris says, is quite an important part of creating a story during the season, which is what Howe said he wants to do with his group of players. Well, we'll talk about Newcastle's Champions League adventure a little later on. But David, let's talk about that Premier League vote, especially including Newcastle. Tell us more. 
Yeah, so this all stemmed really from the ban that Sandro Tonali was handed for gambling offences. And it raised the possibility of obviously Newcastle needing to fill his space in the team while he's serving a a 10-month suspension. And immediately suggestions arose from the public, the industry, that they might like to sign Ruben Neves. Ruben Neves moved from Wolverhampton Wanderers to Al-Hilal in the Saudi Pro League in June for £47 million. Al-Hilal have the same ownership as Newcastle, the public investment fund for Saudi Arabia. The rules, as they stood, dictated that a loan would be possible, a permanent transfer would be possible, anything would be possible. And that led to suspicion among a number of clubs and maybe the public that Newcastle would exploit this arrangement to to bring him in for what many would consider to be under normal market value in the sort of way that other clubs wouldn't be able to benefit because they don't have this sort of relationship with the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia or uh, similar partners. It caused a lot of consternation in certain sections of the Premier League to the extent that the Premier League decided to recommend a ban for January alone as a temporary measure on loan signings into the Premier League from associated party clubs, i.e. teams under the same ownership. When the Premier League tend to recommend any rule change, it is normally passed. Otherwise, they don't recommend it. And they put this to a vote at the shareholders meeting uh, last Tuesday. And as the vote drew closer, I had a lot of conversations around this. Many people were saying, this is not targeted at Newcastle. It's part of an ongoing conversation, not only around transfers, but related party transactions, full stop, commercial deals, front of shirt sponsorship, like we've seen Newcastle and Seller, Chelsea and Infinite Athletes. This is just one strand of it. Definitely Newcastle are not the target, but you can't get away from the suspicion that this wouldn't have come up if it wasn't for that Ruben Neves rumour. And so uh, it went to the vote For any rule change to be passed in the Premier League, uh, you need a two-thirds majority, which is 14 clubs. And so it was tight. It went to the vote and the vote was not successful. The Premier League was defeated and it was defeated by two votes. So the clubs that voted against it to form a a blocking minority were Burnley, Chelsea, Everton, Manchester City, Nottingham Forest, Newcastle United, Sheffield United and Wolverhampton Wanderers. As a result of that, associated party loans into the Premier League in January are still allowed. So many people will be listening to that and say, brilliant, Newcastle can sign Ruben Neves on loan from Al-Hilal. The problem is, for them, I don't think that's going to happen. Jacob, I know you were sort of circling around that meeting as well. <laughs> what was your takeaway from it? I think the thing which is very tangible when you're actually at the meeting itself was the sense of rancour, which there was. I mean, this was an emotive meeting which people got annoyed at. I mean, these meetings would usually take two, three, four hours. This one started at 10.30 and didn't finish until close to four o'clock. It really lingered. There's people having to nip out halfway through for bathroom breaks. Uh, I think Amanda Stavely actually left early as soon as the Newcastle-related stuff had all happened. She quickly sort of dived off before Howard Webb spoke at the end. It was gruelling, and lots of reason of this is because 
I think just other teams feel like it's a way for Newcastle to circumvent things. Like, there's so many regulations in the Premier League. The idea that PIF's ownership uh, of the top four clubs in the Saudi Pro League might allow them to sort of collude to send a player on loan to deal with something which is a very short-term issue, injury crisis, which many other teams are having to deal with in the league, is something which clubs felt very upset about, especially when kind of it's known that Newcastle are flying not over it, but close to FFP regulations as they attempt to grow. And there's already been a lot of animosity towards Newcastle's ownership and kind of the associated issues which arise from it and their wealth. And so as soon as there is an opportunity to shut it down, lots of clubs thought we have to take that. We should try and pursue it. And when it didn't happen, there was immense anger from the 12 clubs who voted with the Premier League, but ultimately failed to get it through. I mean, certainly from a Newcastle United point of view, there has been irritation, I think is probably the best word, at the sort of the way that this has been captured by, I suppose, us as the wider media, but also in general by other Premier League clubs. I was at Eddie Howe's press conference on Friday post the vote, and he didn't fully bite, but he, he couldn't help himself. Well, yeah, you say Newcastle's favourite. It was a, a Premier League vote. We're not the only club involved in that vote. Um, I think the majority of clubs in the Premier League own other clubs around the world, so it's not solely on us, yeah. I don't think. Um, Newcastle as a club had a view. We voted our way uh, in the way that we're allowed to, and yeah, the vote came out on the side that it did. I think, just from my dealings with it, we're very relaxed on it. it it's not the be all and end all for us. That's the way that he and people inside Newcastle feel that this is that there was a focus about Newcastle United, but it wasn't only going to focus on Newcastle United if the vote had passed or failed. I mean, I think that that is a slightly blinkered view of things, but I also think that it that the fact that when the takeover first happened in October 2021, rules were quickly pushed through as well, which were trying to, to prevent related party transactions in terms of the likes of you needed to have fair market value for shirt, front of shirt sponsorship and, and the like. So this was the, the second sort of mid-season vote, if you like, which Newcastle saw as being targeted at them or certainly in response to them. That's where the haste came from. And I think that Newcastle saw this coming as well, that certainly they almost wanted stuff out there. We sat down with Dan Ashworth a few weeks ago as as Northeast journalists and nominally that was about Sandro Tonali and the situation around him and should Newcastle have known and, and everything that happened with his uh, betting suspension. But he was asked about whether Newcastle could sign Ruben Neves on loan in January. And this was before all the information had come out about the vote. And he said, yes, we can as things stand and it was almost like he left that dot 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 and that's when people started digging and this came out and I think Newcastle almost sort of wanted this out there that these these machinations are going out behind the scenes and this is what other clubs are trying to do to us and Newcastle certainly feel targeted whether they are right to feel targeted is another matter but they certainly feel that. I don't deny this is an ongoing conversation because as Chris points out this has been taking place dialogue around associated party transactions since December 2021 straight after the takeover the new rules were brought in on shirt sponsorship and by the way at the meeting that Jacob attended there was a second vote to tighten up those regulations even further on associated party transactions clubs voting for it the Premier League endorsed that again, by the way, wanted, for example, if you're going to get a shirt sponsorship with an associated party, Newcastle and Seller, uh, then you need to show comparable offers from other unrelated parties to prove that this is fair market value. That was rejected 
that was by 13 and 7. So that only failed by one vote. All the same clubs apart from Burnley, who switched on to the other side, interestingly. But back to the main point around the transfers. The Premier League and others can say all they like that this wasn't targeted at Newcastle. But if we didn't have Newcastle in this ownership, why didn't we hear about this sort of thing previously? It's something that one of the clubs that voted to block this said to me. It's clearly targeted at Newcastle. They felt it was prejudiced, you know, that they weren't happy, that it's it's very blatantly aimed at them. Because if you look at the clubs and their associated parties, Newcastle really are one of the few and, and probably the most obvious case where you could benefit from players coming in from your associated party, the Saudi Pro League. You'd look at the PIF-owned clubs and they are packed with top talent. Whereas, I'll just take Arsenal, for example, they're associated party is Colorado Rapids, similar with maybe Manchester City, Chelsea and Strasbourg, you could say. There are some, so Nottingham Forest and Olympiacos, I think there's some benefit to be gained by Forest there. Manchester United and Nice, but that investment hasn't gone through yet. Everton definitely, if their 777 takeover goes through, because their associated clubs are like Standard Liège and Sevilla, uh, Hertha Berlin, Vasco da Gama. But I think a, a, a lot of people essentially saw this as, as something that just needs to be discussed further. And, and so that's why they were in favour of the vote. And those against it had a, had a myriad of reasons. So you can understand, say, a Chelsea who are trying to build this multi-club model and they've got the Strasbourg link. Not that they might benefit from that, but perhaps they just felt it was wrong in principle. Nottingham Forest, as we mentioned there, uh, Everton, in theory, if their takeover goes through. But if it doesn't, by blocking this or helping block it, Everton actually strengthen teams who do have associated parties and they may actually be left at a detriment here. They could even get relegated if if clubs above them bring in players from their associated party while Everton's takeover still hasn't gone through and they end up going down, for example. Burnley, not so sure. Maybe they didn't want or feel it was right to just change rules mid-season. There was a point of principle among a number of clubs on that front. Why didn't you announce this in the summer or next summer? Why are you just bringing in a short notice? That's not a fair and even playing field. We didn't know the rules at the beginning. So there's a lot of politics underneath the surface here. And, and I think Jacob saw a, a quite a bit of that on the day. Adam Crafton recently put out an article about emails that reveal British government involvement in helping facilitate the takeover, especially from a Newcastle perspective. It is important to talk about this, though. It is important to scrutinise the process. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the takeover scenario and the fact that it was delayed for, for 18 months before it was eventually passed and the, the lack of transparency as Newcastle United fans called for as the takeover hadn't passed through. I think that even now, more than two years on, we still don't have clear transparency on that. I mean, the, the, the government and the Premier League both insisted that, that they hadn't really cooperated with one another and that it wasn't something which which had really passed between them. But clearly, given, uh, I think it's a second tranche of emails which Adam Crafton has written about, which show that there was at least communication there and seemingly, if not the government being in favour, they certainly weren't against the takeover necessarily happening and were trying to help facilitate it, it go through. And given the UK government's relationships with Saudi Arabia as a trading partner, that is clearly something which comes in there. And there was talk about, Jacob uh, wrote a piece recently about whether the PIF and the Rubin brothers, who also own a 10% stake, are looking to invest in Newcastle in the northeast in a similar way to has happened with Abu Dhabi and Manchester with Man City. And the UK government were even discussing that in some of these emails. So 
I think that that adds to, I'm sure that adds to the, this sort of conspiracy idea that, that other Premier League clubs maybe have, that Newcastle have this sort of an advantageous position. I think that part of Newcastle's frustration about this specific situation was, yes, it came out of really the Sandro Tonali situation and Newcastle signed him as their big signing in the summer, uh, took most of their budget, £55 million, was seen as a Champions League elite player. Then two months into the season, he's banned for the remainder of the season. Newcastle clearly need a replacement, ideally in January. Ruben Neves is the one who is cited because of the Saudi Pro League links. And also Newcastle have previously looked at him. But my information, several senior figures at Newcastle have said to me, you, they haven't discussed Ruben Neves this season. And they feel that this has all come about because of that. Now, I'm sure that, that they would like the option, as as they voted for, to, to have the option to sign someone from the Saudi Pro League in January, if necessary, if all other avenues fail, whether that's Ruben Neves or elsewhere. But I think that they see this as having emerged from something which actually probably wasn't going to happen anyway. And they also see as, we talk about the multi-club models, the difference between PIF owning these four clubs in Newcastle is... It's not actually a multi-club model. At least they haven't announced it publicly that it's a multi-club model. It's almost these people around the situation explained to me. It's a different situation. They own Newcastle in the Premier League or 80% Newcastle in the Premier League. Then they have significant stakes in four Saudi Pro League clubs and they are different strands to what they want to see. They don't want to be signing players to Saudi Arabia to big up their league ahead of the World Cup that they're having in the 2030s and then sell pl- then loan players to Newcastle as if they're a feeder league for Newcastle. That's not what they see and what they want to do. Now, others may argue that they could still do that and that may still happen, but I think that all of this conspiracy has partly built from how the takeover passed and then where we are two years on because of that. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Ayo Akinwalere. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Gordon for Joe Linton. Miley, Potter pick out. Alexander Isak. Look at this pass from Miley. Cucurella easily. Yeah, what a feeling it was getting stepping onto that pitch. Um, it was a great feeling. I've dreamt of that since I was a little boy. So hopefully I can keep pushing on to get more appearances for the club. Let's move on to the, the project, the Newcastle project. What's the thought from the hierarchy of where the club is and the progress it's making? There's a lot of patience and the reason for that is because of last season, which was a massive overperformance counter to any sort of internal expectation. So going into last season, so if you remember the first season of the, of this new project, they were in the relegation zone. The next year, the aim was just to cement themselves in the top 10. Suddenly, they reached the top four and reached Carabao Cup final, which is almost skipping, if not one, two, three steps. And so now when you kind of see them in a position seventh in the league, potentially about to exit Europe, maybe, maybe not. It is kind of all still well ahead of the pattern which Newcastle's ownership, the planning team, had set out. So in that sort of sense, where we're sort of talking about a project, have a hierarchy feel, 
there's very little pressure. They believe they've got best in class kind of across the footballing side of it, whether that's Dan Ashworth, who's obviously got an absolutely massive reputation from his time at the FA, Brighton and other clubs, and Eddie Howe, who, despite there not being tons and tons and tons of interest in his services after Bournemouth, has shown himself really why he was, throughout that spell at Bournemouth, rated as one of the best up-and-coming managers in England. He has gone to further chunks of Newcastle. You can see across the whole squad and his team of coaches how well-respected they all are. We all joke about Jason Tindall, but he plays an absolutely massive role in this team, whether it's set pieces, pressing patterns, and it all means that, basically, they have a lot of runway to play with. Chris, I'm just I'm just looking at you know, the, the injuries Newcastle have. The game against Chelsea, having to drag in under-21 players. Yeah, I think it was like three goalkeepers on the subs bench as well. I mean, this is, this is not easy, is it? Yeah, I mean, Eddie Howe's used the, the word unprecedented in terms of in his managerial career, seeing this situation and certainly the way that it was at the weekend, that, that was the, the case to have three goalkeepers, then four under-21 players, who, unlike Lewis Miley, the 17-year-old who stepped in the team, he, he has been considered part of the first-team squad since the summer. He's viewed as ready. The other under-21s, it's more out of necessity than anything else that, that, that they are there because Newcastle have so many players unavailable that is partly I think because of the hectic schedule they've got that they've had players going out and it's not just been two or three weeks Dan Burns been a matter of months Harvey Barnes been a matter of months obviously Tonali isn't injured but suspended for a significant period and the strain that that Nam puts on the players who are remaining has then led to a few muscular injuries over the course of the last few weeks the the increased load because Miguel Almiron has had to play again he he suffered a muscular injury thankfully he, he was back and available but then on Friday just before the weekend Joe Willock who'd missed the first part of the season having had a hamstring injury then an Achilles problem has a recurrence of that and it's just they Newcastle have had more than a team unavailable for, for a good few weeks now and given that they have 10 fixtures between now and Christmas every week midweek they play the fear inside Newcastle from an injury perspective is things are probably going to get worse before they get better because a lot of those injuries aren't going to be back till mid to late December if not January and therefore they have to use the same players over and over again and although they want to be in all these competitions that physical strain the way Eddie Howe's side likes to play even if they're trying to adapt that intensity it means that they are probably going to be up against it from a fitness point of view and really in terms of the Premier League they just need to stay in touch with that top four as much as they possibly can until January. Lewis Smiley, I mean, look, he's a young kid, right? Let's not let's not get overly hyped here. Like, it was a fantastic game, beautiful pass to Isaac, and he scored a, a beautiful goal. And it, even the build-up was delicious. I guess in in terms of the project, you see all this money circulating around Newcastle, and actually, some of the biggest stars this season are, are young lads. Yeah, I mean, just to underscore that, I saw someone make the point that when the first lockdown started, Louis Miley was thirteen. <laughs> Uh, which seems pretty ridiculous. <laughs> Don't do this. Do you want to make any of us on this uh, pod feel much older? Like? <laughs> <laughs> he broke into the under-21s team only last season as a 16-year-old. And I think there's such a sense of the coaching staff of they know they've got a talent on their hands. They don't yet know exactly what it is. He can still play multiple positions. Last year in Ben Dawson's under-21s team, he sometimes played on the left wing. He sometimes played as left-sided number eight. I was speaking to some coaches involved in the England youth setup who see him as potentially settling as a number six. And so you've got all of this talent. And over summer, there's a bit of chatter of, is he ready for a loan? So they realised after his performances in pre-season that he was probably ready to be around the first team squad. But equally, another factor in that was that he was deemed 
he's so young. Do we actually want to send him out on loan to another club at the age of 17? He's come in now and settled in this team. And I suppose we don't want to overhype the past too much. So the one thing I will just say about it, it's the confidence to pull the trigger on it. It's one where you see it, receive it and have to play it. And he does it instantly in the first five minutes of the game with some disguise on. And when you have that sort of decisiveness and that sort of technique at your disposal, it's easy to see why Newcastle are so excited about him and so keen to ensure that they look after his development in the right way. Just to quickly pick up on how important this is for the project, I don't want to get into the boring rules of, of the Champions League and naming squads, but Newcastle could only name 23 players in, in what should be a 25-man Champions League squad, and that's because they don't have enough club-trained players who have reached the right level. If you can bring through players like Lewis Miley, when Newcastle get back into the Champions League in the future, they may not have the selection problems exacerbated to this extent because they can have more players they have produced. And obviously you then don't have to buy those players, which helps with FFP and transfer fees and the like so that's another reason why they are potentially so excited about Lewis Miley and isn't he one of four siblings so there could be uh, a few more Miley's on the horizon the other thing is just kind of looking at the wider sense of the project Uh, Newcastle have been redeveloping their academy in recent years it wasn't invested in very much under Mike Ashley and despite the size of the club in recent years Middlesbrough and Sunderland have produced far more players from their youth academies who have graduated to senior setups obviously Newcastle are playing at a higher level but they still really did need to prove to kind of budding footballers in the area that this is the best place to develop and the best way to do that is by bringing players through such as Elliot Anderson, Louis Miley and who knows who might be next. They seemed for a period to appoint loads of recruitment staff for the lower age groups was that purposefully designed uh, by the senior recruitment people to start bringing more talent through under the ultimate guidance of Dan Ashworth as sporting director. Dan Ashworth, when he came in, identified that basically at every single level of the club, Newcastle had a skeleton staff under Mike Ashley. And certainly if they wanted to not only leap to be really average Premier League, but if they wanted to go to Champions League level and and be almost sort of quote-unquote super club level, they needed to make sure they brought in the right people in every single department. And so they have brought in various different figures. Marcel Bout has just just arrived. He worked with uh, Louis van Gaal at Man United uh, previously, and he's there to primarily for recruitment of players between the ages of 16 and 21 to try and get the players in young before they're worth the millions and millions that they are where you have to spend on FFP but also to bolster that academy and make sure they, they've signed Garang Kual they've signed a few of the players youngsters who, who've come in then gone out on loan and hopefully Newcastle think that they've got them ahead of time so yes that's very much exactly what they identified David You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolev Last week we did a series called Crisis Clubs, right? Everton were the first on that list and we're talking about the Premier League stamping hard on, you know, finances, right, of clubs at this moment in time. Newcastle bought a lot of players in the summer just gone, but they've also got a heap of injuries right now. They're in every cup. They're seventh in the Premier League. They're going to need reinforcements, but how they go about that might be quite tricky. Yeah, they have invested heavily. And so FFP is a concern. And in the face of the uh, Manchester City charges, the scrutiny of Newcastle themselves, the Everton charge and subsequent punishment, the allegations around Chelsea, um, I think Newcastle, their ownership, their sporting team have been 
incredibly diligent um, to comply with the profit and sustainability rules. But they did have a bit of uh, leeway because they had spent so little, relatively speaking, under Mike Ashley and and the new ownership came on board and and it allowed them to, to invest. They've since had to be pretty careful. They haven't generated a huge amount of money from outgoings. Alan St. Maximum, the, probably the most notable example of where they have. Um, and at some point, and I think Dan Ashworth has talked about this, you need to trade out as well to be able to balance the books. As far as January is concerned, I understand that there is a bit of wiggle room for them to do some business. Now, it might not be at the the levels that their owners or, or maybe supporters would like in terms of enormous investments, but I'm not sure many clubs do that during the January transfer window uh, anyway. It's, it tends to be a bit of an exception. It's clear that the key focus is that midfield position to replace Sandro Tonali, whether it be on a temporary basis or a permanent addition to the group of players. Just picking up on Chris's point about Ruben Neves, not only is it uh, not being seriously looked at internally, but on his side as well, there are some key points here that I reported recently on The Athletic. Uh, Firstly, he is happy and settled at Al-Hilal. Secondly, they're top of the Saudi Pro League. They're in the quarterfinals of the King's Cup over there, the Asian Champions League, the AFC uh, Champions league uh, is a competition they're competing in too as Chris points out they're trying to grow their league and their reputation does not suit them to just start throwing players on loan to the Premier League it goes against everything they're attempting to build they've lost Neymar to a really serious injury as well Milinkovic Savic has suffered an injury just in recent weeks in that position so he is key and, and I think we do need to move away from the the Neves conversation what about others well I do think we should keep an eye on Calvin Phillips at Manchester City and and there will be other options too. So midfield is the kind of primary area I think Newcastle should be watched for because that could be strengthened. Then there's questions about central defence as well. For example, how severe is Sven Botman's injury and, and do they need to do something there? I think positions like that are more let's wait and see, whereas midfield is a bit of a non-negotiable. And By the time some people listen to this podcast, Newcastle's Champions League status may have changed. They they could be out of the competition. If they are, that could affect their recruitment thinking and also the finances available to them. If they are still in and that they go further into the competition, well, that would help them financially, but it would also mean that they've got more matches to play. And so these days and weeks are going to be crucial for deciding how they act in January. Well, Newcastle have already said that they're probably going to have to be creative is, is the word that they use in January. And I mean, if you look at what they did with Lewis Hall in the summer, that was a loan with an obligation to buy next summer, which deferred the payments. But also in terms of when David's saying about permanent deals, I think it depends whether any long-term targets are attainable at a decent price. If you look at last January, they basically brought forward some spending to sign Anthony Gordon because they saw him as, as their long-term option they wanted. They lost Chris Wood, but rather than sign out-and-out striker, they signed a more versatile player, but someone they believed in and got him in in that window. So if that becomes available, then Newcastle may have more scope to move some money around or change things around a bit to make sure they get someone in January rather than doing the majority of this business in the summer as they usually do. I'd just like to quickly point out that Newcastle's recruitment under this new ownership, new regime has been really impressive. If you go through them one by one, uh, 
myself from a more outside perspective. Okay, you can debate Wood, but they managed to trade him on for money, which was quite an achievement, you could say. But they've been the right signings for that moment, and they've pretty much all made a, a really strong impact. Of course, the sort of blemish so far is is Tenali, with the circumstances being completely different. Um, and so when you look at what Ashworth is building and there's Steve Nixon there, I think Andy Howe, Eddie Howe and Darren Eels as the sort of chief executive overseeing it and the owner's involvement. And you see some other figures when you watch the uh, documentary um, on behalf of of the ownership as well. It does appear to be a pretty slick operation that that is moving things in the right direction for the club. Jacob, just... Just thinking, we actually did a pod on Newcastle and PSG uh, when PSG played Newcastle at home. Great victory for Newcastle. And we were trying to compare these two teams, right? Like one, this Galactico-style model, the other kind of invested in, you know, I guess not so headliny kind of players. But realistically, if Newcastle are serious about being a force in football, something will have to change at some point, right? Like we talk about Mikel Arteta being ruthless with goalkeepers and maybe looking for a striker at some point to take Arsenal to, to the next level. This might have to happen at Newcastle at some point. Yes, I mean, Yasser Aramayan, who's the club's chairman and uh, chairman of the board of the Public Investment Fund, has spoken publicly about we want to be number one. He reiterated it in, in this documentary as well. And this is a man who's, when he wants to achieve something, it generally gets done. I did a big profile on him a few months back, and there's numerous examples when he wanted to merge Aramco, the state oil company, and privatise that. Some of the stories of anger at bankers who were maybe making that slightly more difficult are sort of legendary in those circles. He basically ensured that Live Golf could merge with the PGA Tour, which is a massive goal of his in terms of earning prestige there. Newcastle are just one other kind of pie which he has got his fingers in and trying to take right up to the top of it. So far, the ruthlessness um, hasn't yet been seen, A, because of the FFP rules and the extent to which there's been warnings in terms of Everton, and B, because of the success on pitch. And that second part is really, as David alluded to earlier, going to be what dictates their ability to continue spending. Yes, the staff have a lot of leeway, but also there is a base level that they have to attain in order to sort of unlock the funds they need to to go to the next level. If they are to join kind of what we know is the traditional big six in terms of always being able to spend significant amount most windows, with that comes consistently qualifying for European competition and preferably the Champions League. Final word on you, Chris. And Newcastle going to do it tonight. It's a big one. I mean, Europa League could still beckon if they convert, but can they do it tonight against PSG to start with? I do think that, that they can do it. If you really push me for prediction, I, I think score draw, which should keep them alive, but then it, the fate isn't in their hands. To make sure they get through, they need to win these these final two matches. But Luis Enrique, the PSG uh, head coach, was asked about them beating Milan 3-0 the, the, the match week after defeating Newcastle and he basically came back to Jinders and said have you forgotten about Newcastle I haven't forgotten about Newcastle and you can see that that the defeat at St James's Park is etched on his memory whether he's managed to get that through to the players whether they are able to find levels they simply couldn't at St James's Park the crowd played such a huge role for Newcastle United that night this is going to be the ultimate test for them but they have risen to so many challenges before so I think that they are more than capable yes just a tiny point to add We've talked about Newcastle's injuries, but Zaire Emery is injured for PSG and he's been key for them despite his 
own tender years. And they tend to come through this stage of the competition, but also when the pressure and the scrutiny has been on PSG, they don't always turn up. And Eddie Howe talked about um, a fear of failure, but everything we've seen in Newcastle under Eddie Howe suggests a fearlessness. So I think they will go and attack this opportunity um, without a huge amount to lose, despite the changing expectation around the club and the goals of the ownership and this could be an absolute classic uh, I don't want to mention to Newcastle fans but Kylian Mbappe is fit and in great form but uh, the bigger they are the harder they fall why you've got to beat the best to be that, the David? best like we we're in a good place we we're in a good mood I was about to say how are the lads I mean why would you do that to us come on anyway <laughs> let's end it there David Jacob Chris absolutely lovely to have you with us as it's the season to be jolly, why not give a friend or a loved one the gift of reading some of the great writing from these guys on The Athletic? One-year subscriptions are at the special discounted price of $19.99 or pounds a month. Head over to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Thank you so much for listening. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark, with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beale. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. The Athletic.